0: Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm your host, Pamela Hensley, and in season two, I travel to Berlin. Learn what it's like growing up in a divided city, fleeing the country, living here as a Jewish expat. Join me as I speak to winners and contenders of the German Book Prize, the Thomas Mann Prize, the Dublin Literary Award, and the International Booker. Season two of How I Wrote This begins on April 23rd. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Good evening. Remember his name. It's Norval Morisot, a 31-year-old Ojibwe painter whose works were publicly displayed for the first time last week. The Toronto art world responded warmly to the showing held at a small gallery in the city's Greenwich Village. So what are we listening to?
3: The audio we're listening to is from a segment that appeared on the CBC program Close Up. It's from September 23,
2: 1962. The collectors had heard the new name and came in droves to see and buy his art. They liked what they saw and snapped up all of his 35 pictures for a total of $4,000. Overnight, Norman Morisot, the shy, mystical artist, had found the acceptance he always knew would be his.
1: Wow, so a discovery of a new talent?
3: The introduction of a seminal figure in contemporary indigenous art. This is what you call a watershed moment in history. In September 1962, Norval Morisot had his first solo exhibition in Toronto's Pollock Gallery.
4: A lot of people try to do art, a lot of people study to do art, and then there's a a select rare few individuals that, you know, the Great Spirit puts on this planet to give us art, Um, and and Morisot was one of them.
3: This is Corey Dingle.
4: I am Cory Dingle. I run the estate of Norval Morisot.
3: This exhibition was the first of its kind in Canada. It was organized by Jack Pollock, who was himself an artist but also an art dealer and gallery owner.
5: Morris was kind of emergence on the art scene one, it was it was an art gallery. It was a commercial art gallery.
3: This is Greg Hill.
5: My name's Greg A. Hill. Uh, I'm an artist, a curator, and an indigenous art consultant.
3: Greg also wrote Norval Morisot, a book that covers 50 years of the artist's life and work.
5: It was work that uh, really no one, no one was familiar with. No one had seen that, that kind of imagery before.
3: At least no one who was dealing in arts in Canada at the time.
5: Uh, so it was coming from a place, an unknown place, you know, and, and Jack Pollock felt like he was making a a, you know, a grand discovery. In bringing this artist, you know, out of the wilderness to the city.
4: We also have to remember at that time that Norman was dealing with absolute systemic racism. Uh, the Savage Bush Indian, who were degraded in the in the the eyes of the modern culture.
3: At the time, indigenous art was not seen as art; it was the domain of anthropologists and ethnographers, not gallerists or even art critics. Right. Right. You have to remember that human zoos were still in living memory. Just 80 years ago, you could go to the Jardin d'Acclimatation in Paris and see Abraham Ulrichab, an innocuous man from Northern Labrador, and his family on exhibit in an enclosure. And still, 16 years after that, a group from Sioux Nation lived in a village on the grounds of the Cincinnati Zoo. Hmm. Indigenous bodies were the subject of exhibitions, so the concept of us as artists, well, this was a radical new idea for non-Indigenous audiences.
6: We weren't considered professional, and uh, we weren't really considered artists, we were considered craft people. It was always considered less, and it was also valued less. Joseph M. Sanchez. I'm the founding member of Professional Native Indian Artists, Inc., one of the original seven,
3: Joseph was the youngest member of the Indigenous Group of Seven. He has helped us immensely with this podcast.
6: Moxins and mukluks weren't considered at all art. Today I consider some of that stuff really fine art because of the kind of craftsmanship and dedication and spirit that's put into some of these objects. And in, in a sense, you know, the, the culture of Native America was always, you know, uh, something that could be sold. And people wanted... That culture they wanted the objects they wanted the symbols, but they didn't want the people and that that 's something that we really were were fighting against in the formation of this group, and also the, basically the world art system which didn't consider work by indigenous people artwork you know these were artifacts uh, they could be special, they could be very artistic, but they were still artifacts
4: if I talk about that 60s moment and there's a a famous picture of that novel at that show. And he's just standing just iron spine rod straight up. And he's looking at the camera with firm determination in front of his work. And, and there's a little lady off to the side, looking up to him and going, who is it? Like what, who is this person? And she's fascinated by what she's seeing from a spectator point of view. He's on display.
3: This brings us back to the show at the Paula Gallery. This is Norval talking to June Calwood as part of that segment on Close Up.
7: One of the things that uh, we were wondering about is how you were feeling when the gallery show opened. The people came in and looked at your paintings. I didn't feel nothing. Nothing? Did you feel strange about
2: them? Well, in a way, I was a little strange.
3: Did you feel that they were judging you?
1: Why why is she talking to him like he's six?
3: That's going to be a theme, unfortunately. Do you think that they understood what you were trying to say
7: with the paintings?
2: I think I I hope so, that they understood me.
7: This week I understand you made four thousand dollars. What are you going to do with that?
3: I don't know. What have you wanted?
2: What I wanted was people to know this art. This is all I would have ever wanted. But I don't like to be honored. I don't want everybody to think, well here's Norval Morris, so the great medicine man or artist. I don't want them to think that they me. I want them just to think as the I am. what are you? An Indian. An Indian among Indians. Same thing like I don't like to think the the artist to think me as a great artist. Like, you're an artist, and I'm an artist. Mm-hmm. Not because I made $4,000 a year, I'm greater than you when you made $200 last week, it's this way. To be equal, that's what I like.
3: End of cold open. Time to do the intro.
2: Right.
1: I'm Ryan Barnett, and this is episode one in our new series, Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional Native Indian Artists Incorporated. This is a special presentation of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North, hosted by...
3: Soleil Lunier.
1: So what is the Professional Native Indian Artists Incorporated?
3: The PNIAI, or the Indian Group of Seven, as they were called by the press, was a collective of Indigenous artists who, in the early 1970s, exhibited together.
6: That was all or nothing. We're representing all our people.
3: To raise the profile of Indigenous
6: art. That was really a rock star moment for me
3: and created a permanent space in galleries for Indigenous artists in Canada and around the world. They resisted
1: colonial discourse, and they wanted to break with identity definitions and and boundaries placed on First Nations people.
7: But but there had been a screen in front of them that prevented people from really discerning who they were, and that hole that they made, that they pierced through that screen, um, has stayed open.
1: Can't wait to hear the whole story.
3: But first...
1: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Okay, so who were the other members of the Professional Native Indian Artists Incorporated?
4: There was Carl Ray. Carl Was a great artist. Carl taught art in remote communities, but Carl was also a great realistic artist. Eddie Cobinus.
0: I love Eddie's uh,
3: renditions of wildlife, and I I particularly so when he goes away from the realistic
1: and gets more into like the Cobinus style, which is, you know, closer to like the second generation of Woodland style.
3: Jackson Beardy.
1: He represented
5: his people well. He was able to break barriers and he was able to make changes to the concept of Native people.
3: Alex Janvier.
5: I think he's maybe most of all an observer of nature and light, always kind of commenting on the the quality of light in different places. Daphne Otig.
7: She's an amazing, amazing individual. Brilliant, I would say, you know, just scary, smart. When she began to illustrate the, um, the tales of the elders, she began to develop a style that um, is now quite iconic. And Joseph Sanchez.
6: Working with all these artists has been my education in the art world. Uh, my main mentors to date are uh, Daphne Ojek, who allowed me to work in her studio in those early days, and mine her library of art books. And the founder of the Phoenix Art Museum, his name was Philip C. Curtis, and he was described as a Victorian surrealist.
1: So that's the Magnificent Seven?
3: That's them.
4: So where do we start?
3: We start with Morisot.
4: If I start at the very origin of Morisot, uh, I would say that he was a natural-born painter. He he was a rare individual where it seemed the timing of the earth was transferring Um, from a menagerie of past and and present. And he seemed to be holding on to, with one hand, the past, and and in the other hand, grasping the present. When we look at Morisot's early beginnings, we see this beginning of an individual who is going to have to walk two paths between two different worlds.
3: Norval was raised in Sandpoint along the southeast shore of Lake Nipigon. He was indeed raised in two worlds. He was raised by his maternal grandparents. His grandfather was a shaman and taught normal Anishinaabe culture and spirituality while well, his grandmother taught him about Catholicism.
4: He would say we lived in the bush. But
3: because this was Canada in the 1930s...
4: Very early on, uh, he was quite forcibly taken away from that environment and put into a residential school where we, he suffered the same trials and tribulations that uh, many of them did.
3: At six, Norval was put in St. Joseph's Indian Residential School in Fort William, Ontario.
4: His first day, he went into the residential school and he had to use the bathroom. And so a a father brought him into the bathroom area. And there was these white devices on the wall. And he saw another boy urinating in this white device, which we would know as a urinal now. uh, But Norval had never seen anything like that and he went up and started urinating in, in, in the same urinal as the boy, and the, the father pre- proceeded to whip him for it. And so that was his you know, first day at, at, at school.
3: Novel continued to experience abuse, both physical and sexual, while at St. Joseph's, and he ran away,
4: a lot. We have police records, actually, of him repeatedly running away from the residential school, Uh, and being caught by the RCMP and brought back. But one final time, they they did not.
7: You had uh, how much education?
4: Right, four. You know, a little bit later on, there was quite obviously a systemic racism in a number of the towns where they even had civil laws that indigenous person couldn't come into the town. And so more so origin of dealing with another society you know he he was allowed to go to the church you're allowed to go to the you know to the mill to work or you could go to the garbage dump and that was about it so when we look at entities that directly affected him you know from an early standpoint you you see these these three elements being quite significant
3: church the mill and the dump
4: Especially the garbage dump, uh, unfortunately.
3: At 18 or 19, Morisot fell gravely ill.
4: He thought he was dying.
3: But as Norval would tell it, he was...
4: Visited by, you know, some entities and told him that they weren't really done with him yet, that they needed him to do something. And and they told him that he needed to paint these oral traditions of, of his people or that they would be lost forever to time. And at that point in time, it was taboo to do so. He, he got better. He started to paint the traditions that he knew from uh, listening to, you know, his elders and especially his grandfather. And he was ostracized for doing it.
3: Norval wrote about this himself. In his essay, My Name is Norval Morisot, he writes, The Ojibwe people were very unhappy about me showing tribal secrets to the white people. There is what some people call a taboo, and a taboo is hard to break. But my grandfather said, go ahead. He was a rebel himself. He knew eventually something was going to happen. Something had to happen. But it had to be the personal choice of the individual because, after all, you are dealing with the supernatural.
1: I, well, I always say I was born with a paintbrush in my hand because it, it just seems that I've been doing it forever.
3: This is Daphne OJig in an interview she did for the McMichael Gallery 14 years ago.
1: And my grandfather was a great artist. He, he, he made tombstones and I followed them all over. Since I was the firstborn, I was this little shadow.
3: Daphne Ojig was born in 1919 on Witwemekong Unceded Territory,
7: Manitoulin Island. Her dad was a, um, was a member of Witwemekong First Nation.
3: This is Bonnie Devine.
7: My name is Bonnie Devine. I'm a visual artist. I do some writing. I've done some curating. I am an off-reserve member of the Serpent River First Nation, which is an Anishinaabe territory on the north shore of Lake Huron. Dominic Ojig, that was Daphne's dad. Uh, he had served in uh, in the First World War in Europe, and in Europe he met Daphne's mother,
3: Joyce Peachy, an English bride,
7: and uh, she traveled with uh, she traveled back with uh, back to Equatorial at the end of the war.
3: Daphne was Joyce and Dominic's firstborn. She grew up on a farm and had a pet lamb named Molly, who was allowed in the house. As she's described in her autobiography, Molly's hard little hooves sounded like ladies walking in high heels. She attended the Jesuit run School and early on decided that teaching would be her life's work.
7: She started a little uh, uh, play school in which, of course, she was the teacher, the headmistress, and the main disciplinarian (laughs) and so she would teach her younger uh, brothers and sister and uh, the neighbor children uh, their numbers their abcs uh, how to read she had them um, you know when when the younger brother went to school he already knew um, his times table and everything so she was very very interested in an early age or from an early age in um, in education this will be important later
1: okay
3: She was always a precocious artist and would exchange services with her fellow students, drawing in exchange for help for an arithmetic problem or composition. While math and writing were not her strong suit, Friday afternoons meant art class. In that class, they learned watercolors. I can remember this distinctly, Daphne recounts in her autobiography, Paintbrush in My Hand. She says, I remember the teacher saying... You draw that tree as you see it, and you draw the tree, not how you feel about it. Daphne was a little girl seeking self-expression. At 13, Daphne fell ill with rheumatic fever, the same disease that had weakened her mother's heart as a child. Joyce was terrified for her daughter, and as a result, Daphne was put on enforced rest for three years. Enforced rest? She spent her days in bed, or not far from it. She had to watch as her siblings went to school, something she loved. But in that time, she grew even closer to her grandfather.
7: Jonas Ojig was the um, stone carver for the village, so he was he was engaged in um, carving the gravestones, um, among other things. So he had considerable skills in terms of designing, um, you know, filling up a two-dimensional space with three-dimensional form as relief carving.
1: Tell me a little bit more about your grandfather, because he seemed to loom fairly large in your childhood.
3: This is from a 1992 interview with the CBC. Yes, he played an important role in my life. Uh, he, he was a
1: tombstone carver, and I would watch him chipping out the stone. Uh, and I sat with him many hours on the porch sketching.
3: This is something they shared for years together. Again, from her book, Daphne delighted in sharing the creative process with the kindred soul.
7: You know, her artwork, uh, the way that she made marks on paper, really reflects this uh, notion of carving. So um, very curvilinear forms, um, a kind of etched line uh, that she was very interested in emulating, I think um, probably learned from her granddad.
1: So by all accounts, she had a relatively happy childhood?
7: Yes, but things changed when
3: Joyce died. Daphne was 18.
7: And Daphne um, and her sister Winnie left the island and went to Perry Sound, quite a distance away, actually, ostensibly to find work and uh, to try to, you know, um, form a, their own little household.
3: For Daphne, who rarely left Wiki, she was suddenly faced with racism on a daily basis.
7: You know, she speaks about um, seeking work in the community. Uh, she sought work as a domestic. Her education, her formal education, had been truncated because of the illness. So she had a little bit of a, um, a disadvantage in that, in that sense. Um, so the work that she sought was domestic work, uh, cleaning people's houses, uh, dishwashing. Uh, as soon as they heard her last name, the door would be closed. Uh, so there were there were no employment opportunities.
3: Like Novel, she found herself between two worlds. For the first time in her life, she was confronted by her own indigeneity, even in her own household. Her maternal grandmother, who herself married a First Nation man later in life, resented being the butt of gossip among the white community of Perry Sound. Daphne and her sister Winnie were aware of the embarrassment their uncles and cousins felt having Indians in the family. The girls' black hair and dark complexions were topics of conversation. Their uncles called them dirty little s, and Weenie's grandmother called her little p- itself a racist term for a black child.
1: But what about her art?
3: Well, Grandpa Copagog, the husband of her grandmother, supported her creative life during this time. He built her a work table, a tilting draft table with a little bar at the bottom to hold her paper. So after her long work days, Daphne would sit at this table and draw or paint for hours. She would take Grandpa Copagog's old cigar boxes, decorated them with painted flowers and patterns, and give them to her family as Christmas gifts. But when she did this, she signed her work fisher.
7: Ojig means fisher Uh, in um, in Ojibwa. It's um, the fisher, of course, is a small river animal.
3: And she signed her work Daphne Fisher,
7: or sometimes just Daphne.
3: In fact, she did this for decades, only resuming the use of OJ in the
7: 1960s. Would you uh, describe for us something that's in one of your paintings, say the, the big colored one of the bird and the, what seems to be a snake?
1: We're still in 1962
2: at the Pollock Gallery.
3: Yep, this is Norval talking to June Calwood.
2: Well, the picture represents uh, a thunderbird, and um, the lightning these are lightning marks. the Ones that are shooting forth from its eyes, and then it, the, the lightning marks, or the them, the lightning goes on top its head, the snakes it to paralyze it. And these, um, the last, the tail, square marks on the tail, these are medicine symbols. It can represent any medicine here, what the Indians know. And of course the claw marks were the blood.
7: What are the, the sort of patterns on the snake and on the bird? Well,
2: we could say the scales were there. And those little uh, marks there on the Thunderbird, I, I thought I would put them on there because they look so sacred to me.
7: Do they look sacred?
5: Yes.
4: Before that, it, you know, indigenous art wasn't really looked at as a an area of art, even though we disagree now with that concept, but it was completely it didn't really exist. If if it did, it was you, you bought something at a train from a, somebody holding something up for a nickel. Right. It it wasn't conceived as a expression of of a culture
3: that's cory dingle again
4: when we talk about advancing canadian understanding our moral and and ethical spirituality advancement uh, morriso was absolutely imperative a a towering figure on on bringing that forward into canada's mind and saying deal with it you know you're going to have to deal with this
5: so the significance of, of him and that Pollock show in 1962 was it was like an explosion.
3: This is Greg Hill.
5: In terms of its emergence, its reception uh, by critics, not knowing anything about something and then you no know, feeling the raw power of his work and that it was something very fresh, something unknown and realizing that uh, that you know there there might be more um, and, and, and for sure there was more more you know more so uh, was a tip of an iceberg really
4: because before Moroso, nobody painted like this in this form uh, they gave us a new perspective for humanity and taking bits from from everywhere i People see stained glass windows from the church that he was only allowed to uh, look at uh, in his art. They they see 1960 comic books uh, that he he picked up out of the garbage, uh, you know, uh, bin. Uh, they see, you know, ancient pictographic forms that he saw, you know, carved into the rocks around the area that he was in. Um, and so and I'm not saying that these are the true origins, but this is what people interpret when they try to define where did these visions come from
0: I think it was November 62 in Weekender magazine, which was this great little magazine that would come out across Canada. And it was our only, you know, sort of splashy color magazine that we ever saw. And there was a big inset on Morisot in 1962 after his exhibition. And it compared him to Picasso at the time and I think the comparison to Picasso is useful in that Morriso created a new visual language for the world and so did Picasso. But I, I don't really like that label.
3: <laughs> this is Carmen Robertson.
0: My name is Carmen Robertson, and I'm a Scotts Lakota researcher, and I'm the Canada Research Chair in North American Indigenous Art and Material Culture at Carleton as well.
3: Dr. Robertson wrote a book about Norval. In
0: 2016, I published two books on Norval. Um, one is a digital book uh, through the Art Canada Institute that's really geared at more of um, a non-academic audience to learn about about his art and life. And then the other is Mythologizing Norval Morisot. And that is a more traditional academic book, but it allowed me to go far deeper into thinking about sort of the colonial um, landscape around Morisot and what he came out of as a, an Indigenous artist. And so when Morriso entered the scene in 62, Indigenous Man, it was um, difficult for art critics to think about how to capture this new artist on the scene. So um, although there was some, um, you know, a uh, potentially critically positive uh, review of his art by some art critics in newspapers, for the most part, Morriso was stuck within this stereotypical lens of what it meant to be an Indigenous man in the 1960s.
3: The same article with the same details was written and published about Novel in the wake of that first exhibition. He was untrained. The generous articles described him as self-taught. He was discovered in the bush by Alistair Grossart, or was it Selwyn Doudny or Jack Pollock? He was willing to sell his paintings for $5 when Jack Pollock proposed an exhibition. He was stirred by nature and the legend of his people. An article appearing in Time magazine declared... Few exhibits in Canadian art history have touched off a greater immediate stir than Morisot's. The Toronto critics approved unanimously and speculated that self-taught Morisot may have launched a vogue as chic as the Cape Dorset Eskimo Prince. But almost as soon as Norval began interacting with the press, he learned to play the game, working the media and the market. On the next episode of Among Equals, we look at Indigenous artists and in Expo 67.
5: That was a watershed moment. It was really the first time that Indians in Canada had uh, a, vo- a voice uh, in, in, in an international forum. There's this story uh, that gets repeated um, about uh, the Queen going through the pavilion and leaving uh, Ashen Faced
7: Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: Among Equals is a special presentation of Knockabout Media and has been made possible by the Government of Canada. It's hosted by me, Soleil Lounière, and produced by Ryan Barnett, Maya Foster-Sanchez, and Naka Bertrand. Our series advisors are Joseph M. Sanchez and Donna Fledichuk. This series features interviews with Bonnie Devine, Greg A. Hill, Michelle Lavallee, Carmen Robertson, Pauline Beardy, Philip Gavick, Corey Dingle, Donna Fledichuk and Joseph M. Sanchez. Special thanks to Eric Berent at the Indigenous Arts Center. Our series artwork is by Caleb Ellison Dysart. With additional work by Carlene Harvey. For a list of sources used in this series and to download the listening guide, visit knockaboutmedia.com.
7: A
6: knockabout media original. Hold on.